Please turn once again to the book of Acts, chapter 10. <clears throat> Acts, chapter 10. <clears throat> Last week I said that this is perhaps the most important and pivotal chapter in the entire book of Acts. I actually heard it referred to as perhaps the most important chapter in the Bible. I'm sure some might want to debate that, but it's certainly a, an extraordinarily important chapter in God's Word. Why? Well, because it records for us the taking of the Gospel to the Gentile world. And we can all be thankful for that. We would not be here if that didn't happen. Up until this time in the history of redemption, God's dealings had been primarily, almost exclusively, with the Jewish nation, the physical descendants of Abraham. They, the Jews, were the covenant people of God. They had the covenant sign of circumcision. They were given the oracles of God. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. With the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world, things were going to change very dramatically. He came to establish His kingdom. He came to build His church, which would include both Jews and Gentiles. After Jesus died on the cross and rose again, He gave this commission to His disciples. Go into all the world and preach the Gospel. Preach the Gospel to every creature. In Acts chapter 1, before His ascension back into heaven, He gathered His disciples together and He told them, You shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so far in our study of the book of Acts, we have seen that the disciples have been faithful witnesses. And even uh, with danger to their own lives, they've taken the gospel to the Jews there in Jerusalem and in Judea. And then with some providential prodding through the persecution that arose, they even took the gospel to the Samaritans in Samaria. Well, as we come to chapter 10, it's been approximately eight years since Pentecost. Eight years. And they have not yet taken the gospel to the Gentiles. Why? Why not? Well, I believe it was because of ignorance and prejudice. Ignorance Primarily of who God is and what He is like, but also ignorance of who we are and they were before God and who they are before one another. And so what we find in this chapter is God intervening once again. This time, not through His ordinary works of providence, but through special divine revelation. He comes by way of a vision. He comes first to a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. 
a Roman centurion. And then he comes to Simon Peter, an apostle. And with these two visions, they were, he was preparing both of these men and preparing the Christian church for what God was about to do in extending salvation to the Gentiles. Now, in the first vision to Cornelius, he gave him very clear and specific instructions to send some men to the city of Joppa, about 30 miles away, and to bring back Simon Peter that he might preach to them, to deliver some message from God to them. Well, God also gave Peter a vision to prepare him because those men coming to bring Peter back would be a problem. It would be a problem for Peter. This vision wasn't so clear, though. Uh, it was about this ceremonial clean and unclean animals. You remember the, the sheet that's lowered down by four corners, and in that sheet where there were all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. And he told Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's response was, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. Ceremonially unclean, that is. Uh, to be touched by something unclean or to eat something clean means you would be ceremonially unclean and unfit to worship God. Well, when we last left Peter, he was contemplating this vision from the Lord that he had been given. Uh, and it says in verse 17, and now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius were there. So he's thinking about it. He's, he's contemplating it. And then again in verse 19, it says, while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him and revealed something else to him. But now, He's thinking about this. He's trying to understand what does this vision mean? It's not so clear as Cornelius. That was very clear instructions. Send men, go get them, bring them back. And he has something to tell you. Well, that's nothing to figure out about that. It's right there. But this other one wasn't so clear. The command that the Lord gave him was clear. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. That was easy to understand, though uh, not so hard to swallow, we might say. <laughs> the explanation also was clear when Peter objected in verse 15, what God has cleansed you must not call uncommon. And God had declared all foods to be ceremonially clean. Well, that's easy to understand, but there was more to it. And while he understood what we would call the surface level of this vision, these animals are all clean and you can eat any of them now, he didn't yet understand the deeper meaning and the implications of what this sheet with the animals being declared clean really meant. However, it would soon all begin to unfold and make sense to him. Matthew Henry called it the riddle is unriddled. And that's what we want to look at this morning, this riddle being unriddled. And the first thing I want you to see, and I'm going to read just sections as we go along, rather than read the whole passage all at once. We'll read sections as we go along. And the first uh, point I want to bring out is the uninvited guests arrive at the house of Peter or the house of the tanner. 
in verses 19 through uh, 23. These guests uninvited by Peter, but sent by God. So follow with me as I begin reading in verse 19. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. What reason, for what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. And then he invited them in and they lodged with them. Or he, or he, they invited them in and lodged them, I should have said. All right, so here are these uninvited guests have arrived. They're downstairs and Peter is still up there on the roof where he had been praying. In verse 19, it tells us that the Spirit said to him, This shows us that during this time, the Spirit of God was speaking directly to the apostles. Uh, In John 16, Jesus had promised this very thing, that when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, and He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. So there was this direct communication with the Spirit of God to these apostles. People in our day speak this very flippantly almost about God telling them something. God told me this or God told me that. God said this to me. God said that to me. Uh, But you really can't trust it. I mean, how can you trust it? Uh, If somebody were to come to you and say, God told me to tell you such and such. How do you know it really came from God? Well, the fact is you don't. And if we did everything that every professing Christian or minister said God said to them, we'd be going all over the place. We'd be going one way and then another, and we'd be looking like fools. But here the Spirit was speaking very directly to the Apostle Peter. And the Spirit tells Peter that there are three men waiting for him, and he must go down with them, or must go with them, doubting nothing. Notice it says, for I have sent them, the end of verse 20. I have sent them. And that's really all Peter needed to hear. Uh, God sent them. God said, go with them. So that's all he needed. God said it. Uh, Just like the command in the vision. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Uh, That's what God has called clean. You don't call common. Well, you see, God said it. That settles it. Now, you notice these men, as they come and they they speak about Cornelius and they speak about what he's done. He's a good man. He's a God-fearing man. He's helped the Jews. He has a good reputation with the Jews. Well, all that's good. But really, it didn't matter because God said, go with them. Uh, God said it. God had revealed something to Cornelius and God had revealed something to Peter. God said it. That settles it. And he says to go with them. Doubting nothing. Doubting nothing. Well, Matthew Henry said he must not only go, but go cheerfully, without reluctance or hesitation 
or any scruple concerning the lawfulness of it, not doubting whether he might go, no, nor whether he ought to go, for this was his duty. You see, if God says something, you don't think about it. (laughs) You don't say, well, should I or shouldn't I? You do what God says to do. That's evangelical obedience. You want to do it because God said it. He is your authority. You don't debate with God. You don't put it on a shelf and think about it. You do it. You don't pray about it. You do it. Should I or shouldn't I? He just told you or He tells you in His Word. You don't have to pray, God, do you want me to do this? You do it. But then notice um, in verse 21, it says, Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? Now, Peter obeys God and he goes down to meet these men who are waiting for him downstairs. He doesn't know yet who they are or what they want. All he knows is that they have been sent there by God. And so he goes down to meet them. And so they tell him who sent them, uh, who ultimately sent them, and why. He wants to know, what do you want me for? What's the purpose? He's going to go, but he still he wants to know, and I would too. Uh, but anyway, they say in verse 22, they said, Cornelius the centurion. Now, that's saying a mouthful right there for Peter, isn't it? That's revealing to him already. We're talking about a Gentile. Cornelius was a Gentile name. He's a Roman centurion. They're all Gentiles. So he knows he's dealing now with a Gentile. They're all Gentiles. This Roman soldier that came with them. These two servants of Cornelius. They're all Gentiles. And he tells them they were sent here by Cornelius, but Cornelius was directed by God, by a holy angel, to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Notice how it says that. It says he was in the middle of verse 22 that he was divinely summoned or he summoned you to his house to hear words from you. I think that's quite strange, that expression, to hear words from you. You know, when I thought about coming out here, uh, I'm going to come up, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you some words. <laughs> uh, Dale, tell us some words. We need to hear some words from you. Well, that expression, of course, doesn't mean just to throw out words. But what it does remind us, though, it reminds us of a simple and very important truth that the gospel message is a message that's articulated by words. It's not just an idea or it's not just a thought or a feeling. It's a message. Now, I'm sure you've heard the expression, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, by the way. Uh, there's debate whether he actually said it or said it that way. But uh, people have taken that up and used that almost as a, as a rallying cry. We need to preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. It's the idea of showing the gospel by your life, which of course is important, isn't it? But that's not enough. Uh, it's not enough. The gospel is a message that must be proclaimed. You're never going to win someone to Christ by smiling at them 
or, or being kind to them. Those are good things. And we're to adorn the Gospel, but it's adorning the Gospel. It's not the Gospel itself. The Gospel is a message. And He says that we want to hear words from you. Now, if you skip all the way down just for a moment to verse 33, and, and this, is Peter, uh, this is Cornelius explaining to Peter, uh, giving an answer basically the same question, for what purpose have you sent for me? And so verse 33, So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things, God, things commanded you by God. So what does that tell us about these words that Peter is going to speak to them? They're words from God. And that's exactly what Cornelius and his household needed. They needed words from God. You see, what good would their own words do? Peter's own words do? What good would that do? They don't need the commandments and less, much less the, the opinions of men. They need a word from God. God alone is Lord of the conscience. He's left it free from the commandments and traditions of men. They need to hear words from God. And true preaching, if it's true preaching, is preaching words from God. That's why we believe in expository preaching, where you're taking the text and you're expounding it and applying it. You're not just standing up giving your own words, your own ideas. I hear so many preachers that do. That's all they do is just give their own words. They may do it bombastically. They may pound the pulpit. They may say it in an authoritative way. But in the end, it's just their opinions about this or that. They needed the Word of God. When the Apostle Paul commanded Timothy to preach the Word, he reminded him the time's coming when they will not endure sound doctrine, that is the Word of God, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they heap to themselves teacher according to their own desires. Not teachers that teach the Word of God, but they teach after their own desires. What they want to hear. Uh, they want to hear this, the, these soft messages that, that aren't from God's Word, but they're from psychology or from uh, where, wherever. It doesn't matter where it comes from if it doesn't come from God. You remember when Paul commended the church in Thessalonica. When we came and preached the Word of God, you received it, he says. You received the Word of God which you heard from it. You welcomed it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. This is why Paul and the other apostles refused to preach flattering words. Uh, to preach words of man's wisdom. That's not what helpless sinners need. They need words from God. The words are even further explained if you just look over in chapter 11, verse 14, as Peter is now uh, explaining to these, these uh, uh, the, the apostles and brethren uh, in, in Antioch. He's telling them and explaining to them what happened here. And if you notice in chapter 11, verse 14, he says, uh, back up to verse 13, he says, He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, speaking of Cornelius, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, 
who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. So the words that Peter's going to say have to do with salvation. They have to do with your eternal destiny. These are important words. He's not going to argue about how many uh, angels can dance on the head of a pen. He's not going to go into all kinds of speculation about this and about that. He's going to give them what they need, and they need the words of eternal life. That's what Peter said to Jesus when he asked Jesus asked him, Are you going to go away also like so many have turned away from me? And Peter said, You alone have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? Well, we want the words of eternal life. And then in, in chapter 15, don't turn there, but there's uh, this whole issue comes up again in, in the Council of Jerusalem. And Peter, again, defending his actions there with, with Cornelius, his men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So when Peter says, Come and speak words to us. That's the words he's going to hear. That's the words he wants to hear. Words that were commanded by God. Words that have to do with eternal life. The Gospel itself. That's the words he came to preach. And then uh, we read in verse 23, it says, So he invited them in and lodged them. Now that was a big step for Peter. Inviting these Gentiles to lodge the night with him. Now, this shows us that Peter was already beginning to understand what the vision was really all about. It wasn't primarily about animals, clean and unclean, and what you could eat or not eat. It was really about people and how you view them. Now, he'll say more about that when he when he gets to the house of Cornelius. But that's important. He, he lodged them there where he was staying. And then the next day, it says, on the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Well, uh, this was wise on Peter's part uh, that he took these Jewish brothers with him. Uh, he, he brought six of them, in fact. There were ten that went back to Cornelius' house altogether, but, but six, then Peter, and then the, the three that came. Well, that was wise on Peter's part. He, he took these Jewish brothers with him so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word would be established. And he brings up that they were there. They saw what happened. That was good. That was wise of Peter. That you don't just have to take my word for it. Here are other faithful witnesses, other Christians, Jewish Christians, though. Now, he doesn't know what will happen, but it was wise for him to bring these brethren with him. And so, uh, we come next to Peter now meets Cornelius for the first time in, in, in uh, verses 24 through 33. So, would you follow with me as I, as I read those verses? It's a longer section, but follow with me, please. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. 
I myself, uh, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. And then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go uh, to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here whose surname is Peter, he is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. And so Peter, when he arrives, Cornelius is there waiting for him, anticipating his his arrival. Now, that was good for Cornelius, and it certainly must have been quite an encouragement for Peter. He's not, they don't have to go find Cornelius. Oh, he went to the store. He'll be, he's there waiting. He can't wait for Peter to come. He had, he had uh, figured out the time that they would be back or approximate time, and he's waiting. We also see Cornelius' eagerness to hear the Word of God in that he invited many others to come and to hear the message. It says he called together his relatives and close friends. Well, this reveals more to us about Cornelius than it did before. It demonstrates his piety that he was concerned not only for himself and for his own soul, but for the souls of others, especially his loved ones. You see, a Christian does not want to go to heaven alone. He wants to bring others with him, especially his loved ones, his family, his children, and his friends. And so he calls them together so that they can hear the words of eternal life as well. And then verse 25 tells us, um, and it was Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Well, things were going so well, (laughs) but uh, this wasn't good. Now, while it was wrong, and it was thoroughly wrong for him to greet him in this way, to fall down before his feet, it was in some sense understandable. Matthew Henry said that given Cornelius' present ignorance, it was excusable and in some way commendable in that he showed a veneration for divine and heavenly things. However, it was entirely inappropriate. Entirely inappropriate. And Peter, unlike his supposed successors, he lifted him up, immediately lifted him up, saying, Stand up! I myself am also a man. Now, this is not only an acknowledgement that God alone is to be worshipped, which it was. It's wrong to bow down. And sometimes it was just a veneration or some kind of a cultural respect and so forth. It was still wrong. And Peter understood that. You see, 
He's not only acknowledging that God alone is to be worshipped, but Peter is acknowledging that he is just a man. And that's why it's wrong to worship me. I'm just a man. Uh, the same as Cornelius was just a man. Notice he, he says it in this way. He, he says that I am just a man. Uh, uh, verse 26, he lifted him up saying, stand up. I myself am also a man. That is just like you. We're both in the same boat. <laughs> We're both equal. We're meant. That's saying a lot. The Jews looked at the Gentiles as what? Gentile dogs. Dogs. But he's saying, I'm a man just as you are. So he's acknowledging that Cornelius is a man, but that he is a man. And they're both just men. He's putting himself where he belongs, right alongside of this Gentile. I'm no better than you. What you're doing is wrong. You shouldn't do this. I'm just a man just like you. G. Campbell Morgan said, in that word in which he refused uh, worship, he recognized the manhood of Cornelius. And that was a lot for a Jew. He recognized, you're a man just like I am. Now, this also teaches us that we do need to be very careful and guard against the sinful tendency to elevate men. Even those who have been greatly used by God. You see, our hearts are prone to idolatry. This was the problem in the Corinthian church, a major problem in the Corinthian church. They were exalting men. They're, they're spiritual leaders. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And Paul stops them dead in their tracks and had to remind them who they were, who we are. He said, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Servants through whom you believed. Be careful not to exalt Christian leaders as though they're some, in some celebrity status or, or they're on a plateau. No, they're servants through whom you believe. We need to understand who we are as ministers and not to be exalted above another. But as Christians, we need to understand who we are. We need to understand that we are all but men. And all men are the same in the sense that God is our Creator. He is our Judge. And we stand on a level platform. This should do away with all racism of any sort. And there's all kinds of racism. Don't let anybody tell you there's one kind. There's all kinds of racism. And it all has to do with people thinking they're better than other people. Or better than other races, or better than other social classes, or whatever it might be. But before the cross, we are all on level ground. And then, we go on, and it says uh, in verse 27, He talked with him, and he went in, and he found many who had come together. And then in verse 28, So then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with, or to go to one of another nation. What Peter is doing here, he's, he's addressing the elephant in the room. And, and he's the elephant. <laughs> he's standing there with all these Gentiles surrounding him. A house full of them. And he's a Jew. And so he just addresses it right there. But it's an important thing. It's a lesson that he's just learned. 
Now he's beginning to understand the deeper meaning of the vision. It wasn't so much about food as it was about people. And he's beginning to understand it. God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. That's again the bottom line. It's what God shows us. And God shows us that men are all from the same seed. We're all from Adam. We're all children of Adam. We're all creatures of God. We all stand on the same level. We are all but men. Therefore, he says in verse 29, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. And so I asked him, for what reason have you sent for me? Asks again. In verse 30 through 33, we won't be unfolding that because it's just a repeat of what we already looked at. Peter recounts the vision he received from the Lord. And then then he goes on now in verses 34 through the end of the chapter. He preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, we'll not be looking at the sermon itself this morning. Because I want to focus for a moment at his preface to the sermon and the result which followed that all have to do with this lesson that Peter is learning. What God is showing him. And so here's the preface. He begins in verse 34. Then he opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation who fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. Whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. That's the big lesson here. God is no respecter of men. He shows no partiality. That's taught throughout the Scriptures, you know. It's throughout the Scriptures. God again and again demonstrates that He is not partial. And that's how different He is from men. We show partiality all the time. But God shows no partiality. He's no respecter of men. What a great God He is. He's just. He's holy. He's merciful and He's kind. Do you remember when God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint the new king of Israel? He didn't tell him which one of the sons of Jesse he was to anoint. And so it says when he came, he looked in and he saw Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Tall, handsome man. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. But the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's something that is wonderful about God. He's not impressed with how much money you have. He's not impressed with your race or your culture. He's not impressed with anything about you. He's not going to judge you because in one way because you fit into this category or that category. In Isaiah 55, there it says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord and I will have mercy on Him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. He's promising mercy if you come. And then He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than yours. Impressing upon them again, he is not like men. Men would write off these people who have sinned in such a way and, and wrote them off as he had nothing to do with you. Stand by yourself. I'm holier than thou. But God says, no, I have mercy. I show mercy. God is not impressed with the things man is so impressed with. Men are impressed with fine buildings. Isaiah 66 is, they were going to build a, a, a wonderful temple for the Lord. And God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is a house you could build for me? And where is the place of my rest for all these things my hands have made? And all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. God looks at the heart. And that's what really matters to God. It's what's on the inside. Jesus spoke of this throughout his ministry. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They washed the outside of the cup. While the inside was foul and dirty, God looks at the heart. It's not a man's status in society. It's not the size of his bank account or the size of his house. It's not his physical abilities or his appearance. It has nothing to do with his race or his education. God accepts all who come to him. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, and it's not used so much in our day, but remember his dream that a, a man would not be judged by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. And that's what God is saying. It's not what a man is on the outside, but what he is on the inside. That's what really matters to him. And so Peter lets them know God is not a God who shows partiality. And then if you skip all the way down to verse 44, after the sermon, really wasn't after the sermon, it was kind of uh, interrupting the sermon. While he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, those six men and then Peter, the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? You see, there's no difference. No distinction. <laughs> you know, this God fear, yes, you, you can worship God, but you're not really an Israelite. You're not really in favor with God. But here he's saying, no, those who believe, those who repent and believe the gospel, they will receive the Holy Spirit. That's what he preached there in, in chapter 1, or in chapter 2, I mean, on the day of Pentecost. You remember when Peter preached and, and they the, the men were cut to the heart and they cried out to Peter, the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent 
And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise. And the promise was the gift of the Holy Spirit is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This promise, if you'll repent and believe, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And even though He even said the words to all who are far off, generally referring to the Gentile nations, He didn't get it then, but now He gets it. He sees it actually happen. Gentiles are getting the Holy Spirit just as we have. No distinction. There are not two classes of people or three classes of people in the church. There's one class. They're believers. And they all are baptized. And they all receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) What a wonderful God we have. All are welcome to Him. He calls all men to come. Jesus said, come unto Me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out, no matter who comes. And you see, all men, without exception, need Him. They need the same Gospel. As we'll look next week at the Gospel he preached, it was the same Gospel he preached to the Jews. Paul had one Gospel for the Jews and for the Greeks. Because all men have the same problem. We're all sinners. Every one of us, lost and undone. We all stand before God condemned because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The book of Romans, that's what it starts out. Paul is showing the Gentiles are lost. You can see the Jews nodding their head. Yeah, give it to them, Paul. Give it to them. And then he turns to chapter 2 and says, Who are you, old Jew? Who do you think you are? You're just as lost. And he's showing that all men need the gospel. No distinction. You're not better off if you're a certain race. You're not better off if you have a high standing in society. You're not better off. All he requires is that you feel your need of him. And we all stand in need. And there's one Savior, one Gospel for all men. And all are brought into the church. The Jews and the Gentiles. Now, some of the churches you'll read, they're mostly Jews because of the providential uh, placement of that church. I don't know. Some reason more were Jews. Others more Gentiles. But it doesn't matter. They still belong together in one body. He takes of the two, Paul says, and makes one new man. So God's Gospel is for all men. The church is for all men. When I moved to Memphis, Tennessee, as a young man going to Bible college, and I went to Bellevue Baptist Church, and Adrian Rogers was the pastor. Uh, he been, hadn't been the pastor too many years before I got there, but he, he was my pastor back in, in Merritt Island, Florida. And uh, I was told the story just a, a couple of years before I came that uh, they give that invitation at the end. And just as I am, like we sang, and, and people come forward. And this is a large church, probably the largest church in, in Memphis, I believe. 
one of the largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. And a black family came forward. And they received them into membership right then and there. And so, but the pastor always says, no matter who it is, uh, that announcing them, does anyone have an objection to admitting them into membership? Well, they never have an objection until now. And someone stood up and said something about we've never had a black family in our church before. Join the church. And to give him much credit, he stood there and said, this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as long as I am the pastor of this church, we will receive anyone who comes. Anyone of any race that, that believes in Christ will receive them. And he got a standing ovation. I hope they all believe that, but we all ought to believe that. That there would be no distinction. The gospel is for all men. The church is for all men. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. But that's what Peter is learning. And it's going to be a difficult lesson for Peter. He takes it to the, to the brethren and, and they don't get it until he shows them and then they get it. But then Peter still struggles with it. Paul even writes about it in the book of Galatians where Peter, he played the hypocrite. Uh, he, he was eating with the Gentiles until these Jewish brothers came along and then he didn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. Paul said, what are you doing? You're being a hypocrite. And it even influenced Barnabas. This great man, gracious man, Barnabas, he started doing it too. You see, this is a, this is a sin that affects each one of us. The sin of pride and prejudice. We're full of pride. We think ourselves better than we are and we think others less than they are. And we need to fight against it. And the only thing that will help us to fight against it is not to get on some political bandwagon, not to pass new laws. What will help us is to understand who God is. He doesn't show partiality, and neither should we. And we need to understand who we are. We're just men and sinners at that. And we all stand in need of the gospel. Let's pray.